Hey everybody, how's it going? My name is Bobak Hashemi, and I am the creator of this podcast, which is going to be called Casual Science. So this is the first episode, and because of that, I'd like to give a little description about what you guys should expect. Uh, basically, the goal of this podcast is to promote the public understanding of scientific research, but also the public understanding of scientific researchers. So I want to kind of showcase both the research and the researchers. Uh, and the idea here is to make everything, you know, as informative as possible while still being easy to listen to and, uh, of course, accurate. So I'm actually a scientist myself. I work on the Large Hadron Collider, uh, which is a particle physics experiment in Geneva, Switzerland. I am a graduate researcher at University of California, San Diego. And uh, so science is a very important part of my of my life, and it's very important for me to make sure that when I, I try to explain science to people that I'm actually giving a factually accurate representation of, of, uh, of the ideas. So uh, like I said, I want this to be a fun show, uh, but I also want to get people thinking about what it actually means to be a scientist and what you can actually glean from scientific research. So I wouldn't be the first person to say that there's often sensationalist headlines uh, when people report about science, and I think that that's a huge detriment to our, to our society. So the hope is that by understanding who scientists are and how they work, that we should be able to, as a, as a society, do a better job in understanding science. Now also, quite importantly, um, I just want to show people some cool stuff that's going on in the world right now. So it is an absolutely incredible time to be alive. And there's so much interesting technology, so much interesting research going on. And there's very few venues for the sort of layman to actually learn what is at the cutting edge of human knowledge right now. What are the technologies that we hope to see in 10 or 15 years? And I hope that all of your inner sci-fi nerds or that curious child um, really has their imagination stoked and their interest piqued by listening to these researchers talk about what they're doing at, like I said, the really the cutting edge of human knowledge. All right. Well, that's enough of the introduction to the, to the series in general. Uh, today, I'm going to be talking with David Vidmar who is uh, an, actually an old friend of mine from Penn State. We went to undergrad together all the way out in Pennsylvania. I live in uh, San Diego now with Dave. And Dave works on a really interesting topic, which is the physics of heart cells. So typically, people who study things like the heart are under the medical or bio, uh, biological sciences umbrella. Now, Dave is one of, uh, one of I guess, a few researchers at, at UC San Diego who is in a field called biophysics, which is not extremely new historically, but really hasn't gotten a foothold um, in the scientific community until maybe 10 or 15 years ago. And the general thrust is that people hope, through studying biological systems, that we can learn a lot about physics, or conversely, by applying physics principles, things that we've learned from physics, 
to problems in uh, the medical field or just problems in biology that we can learn um, you know, new things that the kind of classically trained biologist wouldn't understand. Uh, so this is generally, there's a huge push in science for these sort of like cross collaborative fields. And Dave works in a, at, a, at a point that's kind of between medicine and physics. So it's a really interesting place that not a lot of physicists find themselves um, being able to, to actually impact the quality of life um, of, of people with medical uh, issues. So I think I'm going to leave the rest of the description of the research for the actual interview. So without further ado, here is the first episode of Casual Science. I hope you enjoy. everybody, how's it going? It's Bob back here. I am here with David Vidmar, who's a friend of mine who also goes to University of California, San Diego. Yep. How's it going, Dave? Pretty good. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Thank you for joining me today. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah. Are you, uh, how, how excited are you be, to be on the first first episode here? I'm very excited. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've been looking forward to this. On a scale of yeah. one to ten? Uh, you know, I don't like to rate things. I, I'm pretty sure I asked you for a scale of, of 1 to 10 here, Dave. It's a 10? Yeah. I'm going to take that as a 10. It's a 10. Okay. So what do you, what do you study, Dave? So I study physics uh, with a specialization in biological physics. Okay. So you were actually the first person to tell me about biophysics. I remember, uh, so we went to undergrad together at Penn State. And we had a, a professor there who was working with, um, with songbirds. So... Yeah. Do you remember exactly what the the context of that of that research was? Yeah, he wanted to. This is the the professor that I worked for uh, for six months or so. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, there was two, right? <clears throat> so I worked for the guy who was working on the theory side, and he wanted to, for broad context, he wanted to understand how humans uh, learn language, how they acquire uh, um, an understanding of, of of language. Okay. So in order to do that, he looked at songbirds, which actually uh, learn their songs from, I think, their parents, I assume. Okay. Uh, and so because that is sort of acquired. So the, the parent, a parent bird sings the same song as the, the offspring bird? Uh, I'm not actually sure if it's the same song. Okay. They, they, they learn it somehow, maybe in a complicated process through, through okay. their, the, the birds that are you know, surrounding them. Okay. But, it, but it's acquired in some sense. Okay. And so his so whole point if was... The, if the mother bird or whatever is not there, the child bird won't learn a song or won't learn yeah songs, presumably I if there's yeah if there's no bird i mean okay. yeah, yeah no idea all right yeah. fair enough yeah, uh. yeah, yeah. <laughs> not, not, not exactly sure the specifics um but the idea being that we can use this as a window to understand language ac- acquisition uh from a neuroscience perspective right so he looked at individual neurons and he would look at the data that you would acquire from neurons and this is where the experimental side of things okay. came into play 
Right. So I, I remember specifically that they would actually hook in basically electrodes to the to the younger birds' brains, mm -hmm. yeah. and they would be looking kind of at the you know what parts of the brains were being stimulated as they were playing these songs to the younger bird. Uh, as um, they were, as the younger birds were singing the songs themselves. Was it as they were singing? And, and both, I think they would okay. play them, and they they would sort of look at the um, the interplay there right, of when right. they would play so, a song and when the bird the bird would sing it specifically. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, you know, and the the cool thing is that sort of research is not at all what you're doing nowadays. No, yeah, yet it's no. still called uh, biophysics. Biophysics, yeah, right. very much. Yeah, it's a very broad field. Right. 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 So how did you how did you get into it? Was it just um, through Penn State that you just meet these professors who were who were working on the songbird stuff and that turned you on to it or yeah to an extent so I was uh, I had been working for a group in particle physics for a little bit okay. um, for about six months or so and I, I had sort of just found that I didn't enjoy that work so much and so I was sort of looking for a different field right I mean we were probably juniors I guess at this point mm -hmm. so it was becoming a time where I wanted to figure out uh, if I was really interested in research as a whole. And so to do that, I wanted to join a group which was different than particle physics. Right. I, I sort of had made up my mind. And yeah, and at Penn State, we had a pretty decently, you know, for, for biophysics, we had a decently big department right? Uh, with a couple people working. And I think I remember hearing something about neuroscience and physics. And right. I thought that was uh, unique. Right. right. I mean, yeah. it was just kind of interesting, the idea that you could use physics in neuroscience. I, I mean, I remember specifically when I was growing up that kind of the two... I, I formulated these two questions that I thought were, yeah. you know, the best, the most important questions. Sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and one of them was, you know, why, why does the universe exist? Why is there something instead of nothing? Yes. You know, yes. and, and then the other one was how does, uh, how, how do you get life from, from inanimate objects? Sure. Yeah. Those are and two, that's two big the, ones. Those are the two big ones. Yeah. yeah. I was, I was pretty spot on, you uh, pretty a little bit astute. ambitious, yeah. a little ambitious, astute, but I would say that. Uh, but yeah, it's cool that biophysics is really, really trying to answer that second question. You know, there's so many people who are, you know, that's not the only goal of biophysics, Sure. Yeah. but it's, you know, that, that is, you know, neuroscience is, is trying to answer those sorts of questions too. Yeah. But, uh, I guess as, as, yeah, it's, it's slightly different as the physicist, you know, specifically when you're thinking about it from the point of view or of how do you get a living system uh -huh. from something that's just an inanimate object that there are just these equations that, you know, govern the dynamics and these equations tell us exactly what's going to happen in with these objects. Sure. Uh, yeah. If you know what's going on with the objects at one point in time, yeah. you know what the objects are going to do at another point in time, you know, sure. it's like this deterministic thing. Yes. The certainty from physics, right. the idea of applying that to such a messy biological system. Right. And specifically to the point where you have this certain dynamics mm -hmm. or these certain, yeah, and, and somehow you get life and, yeah, and yeah, life yeah. is just so uncertain and like we make decisions like how can my decisions be described by these equations it's you know yeah they seem at odds right just the idea of the certainty we see this determinism we see in physics and the diversity that we see in life right yeah yeah it's, it's really really cool stuff um but so there are more kind of as, as fun as that is and from a philosophical sure. standpoint there are maybe more uh applicable or more like kind of directly useful things sure, that you're pragmatic. doing in bio yeah yes in, in biophysics and and that's kind of where you've landed right yes that's the research i'm doing now i would right. say it's a bit of a more pragmatic approach where we have a specific um disease set of right. yeah set of disorders right heart rhythm okay. disorders that we want to look at and we want to understand those still from this sort of uh idea of determinism from physics from this idea of these quantitative models right so we're going to take that from physics but we want to use that 
to understand something that's a little bit closer to uh, a biological. It is a biological system, right. a real life. But system. it's it's almost it's it's like almost a form of medicine too. Yes. Like I mean, yeah. you're 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 really the people that you work with, the conferences you go to, that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. There are you're you're rubbing elbows with a lot of people who are doing you know, actual medical procedures yes. and surgeries and practicing stuff. physicians, right? Yeah, yes. and you're you're helping them kind of. Uh, learn and decide what sorts of treatments they should be or you know what sorts of even mm -hmm. surgeries they should be doing or how they should be doing their surgeries uh to some you know maybe sure, that's in a the end goal. sense right, right. Yeah. Maybe we can say that's the that's the goal to right, right right yeah and it is it's uh you know it's this idea that if we can use these ideas from physics and from math to understand the data that we can get now right we're now at the level where we can get some actual meaningful uh data from these human patients so we can use that now on our end to sort of fit that in with our theoretical models and try to understand how better we can combat this disorder. Right, right. So let's actually discuss. So what what uh what precise sort of disorders have you been looking at very recently or, or... So, so recently we've been looking at what's called atrial fibrillation. Okay. Which is a type of heart rhythm disorder. Right. Okay. So basically it's an irregular heartbeat. Whenever your heart um, stops beating with this regularity of you know about once per second. And it starts instead kind of chaotically quivering. Okay. Uh, it's supposedly it looks like a bag of worms instead of you know, <laughs> a, a constant heart okay. pumping. Okay. Right? So the pumping function ceases. And if this occurs in, there are four chambers of the heart. If this occurs in one of the two smaller chambers, you can live with it fine. It's okay. uh, uncomfortable and it increases your risk of stroke by, I think, about five times. Okay. A pretty Ooh. significant amount. So as you get older, this becomes a, a more serious thing. condition. It can actually right. lead to death to some extent by, by terms of a stroke. Sure. Uh, but even worse, if it happens in the two big chambers, which are responsible for the pumping of the blood, mm -hmm. as you can imagine, if those, those are not are the, contracting. Those are the atria? What, those what are is, the ventricles. Those are the ventricles. Yeah, those okay. are the other ones. And so if it happens in those, uh, it's fatal within minutes. Okay. So okay. so the same, It's you know we think it's really the same mechanism, mechanism occurring both ways. Right. Though we don't know for sure, but this right. Reason to believe it's at least similar. Reason to believe mainly that it makes uh, the problem tractable. Uh, to an <laughs> extent, also there, you know, it's the same same tissue. There's, right, right, yeah. yeah. It I'm looks, just, I'm um, just yeah, pulling it. Of course, sure. no, but it's a valid question. Of I mean, that we is can't say that it's the really same a lot of know. the way that we do science. I, you know, at least as far as I've seen, it, it does come down to that. You know, you mm -hmm. have yeah. uh, some set of techniques or some set of mathematics that you understand and. Yeah. You get this new problem that might not fit into that set of mathematics. Yeah. You know, you're not sure if you can use the same ideas to solve this problem, but yeah. maybe there's then... there's a sense to <laughs> which you will have to drive forward and say maybe and maybe we should try and if we yeah, get something yeah. interesting, you know, you don't have to know all at once. Right? And you spe can, you specifically can... in physics, it's yeah. it's kind of crazy how successful that sort of technique yes, has yeah, been. Sure. I know there's um I don't know if you've ever read this paper uh, by. Uh, was it by Weil or um, this is one of these mathematicians whose name starts with a W? Um, sure, yeah. And he is called the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. Uh, Wigner, yeah, Wigner, Wigner, yes. that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics and the physical sciences. And yeah. he basically yeah, yeah. discusses how how often uh, in the history of physics you've had kind of these situations where you have tried to you know build a theory based kind of solely on the fact that equations look like they are telling you to do this thing yeah, when right. kind of physically you have no reason to assume that yeah. um, 
that, that this should be the way that the the system works but um, sure yeah but i mean to some extent this is where the theoretical part of theoretical physics comes into play right sure if you can apply that you're not done when you apply it but you can apply it and then see where you are right you apply that to the system and see do we get other things you have to check does this now make sense with all these other implications of our system right and if you can look and see those then you start building up some confidence that this may really be a very good model for the system right it's what a model is you know in a sure yeah sense. That, that is that is right. the idea you know you yeah. you build these models you test you test them you see if yeah. they actually corroborate with data and if yeah. they do then sweet i guess we figured out how it works and yeah yeah and, and even then, then you know it's it's a model for a reason you know you know it's going to break down somewhere because yeah, it needs true. to be simple enough that you can manipulate it and get a meaningful general result right for a theoretical physicist to sure. feel happy right um but if it's especially in biophysics if it's corresponding to a real life system it's never going to be it can't describe everything or it can describe everything with some huge parameter very you know you can say well if you fix a million parameters you can get the right sure, answer. Sure, sure, and you know sure. how meaningful yeah, is that yeah. but if you can get a broad uh, answer in some small part of that system if you can break off some part of the system and understand that really right, well right. with the model you, it's not that you think the model represents everything but it represents what you at least this region yes of, this of little space this little part of the system that right we're right. interested in right exactly. and that's where it's interesting because then if you can find that part of the system which is amenable to this uh, model building sure. and also which is important enough that it that understanding it is very useful mm-hmm. um, i think you have right, you know, right. Kind of a path forward so what exactly uh, were you looking at with these with this uh, atrial fibrillation? What what kind of um, questions were you trying to ask and with your with your model and sure. what sort of model were you using? Yeah. So the primary question that we want to understand is uh, well, really, when it comes to atrial fibrillation, there's kind of two questions we could ask. Uh, one is how does it start? Right? How is it initiated? And it so turns. So why does the heart? change its yes. beat from what a very regular beat to something that's kind of a bag of worms. Or... Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, sure. You see that as a person, you think, why does that happen? Sure. Uh, and it turns out that that is an interesting question that many chemists and biologists worry about. But there are probably just a very diverse range of, of, of causes. Sure. And so the generality that we want in physics makes that question harder to answer from a physicist's perspective. Okay. So my research is not focused so much on that question, but it is focused on... The fact that when you see this fibrillation occurring, when it starts beating irregularly, sure. it doesn't last for forever. It lasts for some time scale. It lasts for minutes or days, okay. and it can get worse in patients where it'll start lasting for these, um, they'll have these episodes which last for minutes, and then they keep having episodes successively which mm-hmm. last longer. And so another question is, why is it lasting that length? Right? Why is the episode lasting a certain set amount of time and more to the point what is actually causing it to persist right because there is like kind of a built-in mechanism in your heart right to, mm-hmm. to keep it beating in this regular way right, yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. kind of somehow that mechanism has been overtaken yes to some degree by something mm-hmm. else that's going on mm-hmm. right and yeah it's been disabled right and so and the other thing is it's not been disabled forever it's not a binary yes no once it gets disabled sure, sure. you're done so we want to know what is it that keeps this beating irregularly for some amount of time and then also at some point transitions back to beating regularly okay so the question is to understand um to some extent what is driving this fibrillation it seems like there's really in a meaningful sense something driving it uh for different periods of time Mm -hmm. and And so yeah so so, um basically to to answer this sort of question Mm -hmm. i know there was kind of some numerical you're you're solving uh, what are called 
partial differential equations or sure. reaction diffusion mm -hmm. equations. Uh, yeah. So what does that actually mean to you from kind of the physical or biophysical perspective? So what that means is we have uh, a set of equations which is known through some experiments in the 50s and 60s uh, and until nowadays. Um, there have been many experiments and it's known to represent a very general class of behavior which characterizes um, the behavior of the type of cells that we have in the heart. Okay. So essentially what it does is it models the voltage across the membrane of the cells. So the boundary of these cells are impermeable. So um, ions cannot pass through those okay. except for in certain channels. Okay. And so what you can do is you can model the dynamics of those channels and it turns out you can get this kind of activity that we see in heart cells and in, for instance, cells in the brain, right. which is this action potential. Sure. That basically means that you have some resting state and then if something excites it, some current is sent into the system, it will spike and then it will be quiet for some amount of time. And then if you send in more current, okay. it will spike, but it's in these uh, sort of packets, right? It only spikes to the same value every time and then it falls back okay. down. Relatively. So you're basically modeling kind of a current in a volume or in a, on a surface or something? Is you're you're modeling, yeah, a current along um, transmembrane uh, of, of, the, uh, of the cardiac cell. So you're okay. just looking at this, each cell or some clump of cells, and you just want to look at the currents traveling across those cell boundaries. So you have this equation mm -hmm. that tells you what basically the, the, the currents are yeah. in, uh, on the kind of surface of the heart, mm -hmm. and somehow that tells you about the, uh, the heartbeat. It, yeah, and so what that tells you about is the voltage at each point on the heart. Mm -hmm. You can model what we expect the voltage to be if we give it some uh, current or some voltage. Sure. And then we can also model, uh, since all of these cells are sort of connected through these what are called gap junctions, mm -hmm. we can actually look now not only what the voltage is on a single cell, but we can look at how it spreads and propagates across the tissue. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that the way a heart contracts is it contracts when that electrical wave passes over over right. top of it. Right. So kind of the I guess the picture in your head here is that mm -hmm. there's some uh, you can think about like the heart, and then you have this uh, kind of like wave mm -hmm. starting at the top of the heart, sure. and then kind of goes down to the to the bottom. It just like kind of goes over the yeah. It the, passes over the heart, and that is what and that wave which is, you know, it's very quick. It, it happens very fast. And that is what causes it to actually contract. To contract, sure. And that's right. the heartbeat from, from the, the perspective of your mathematical model, yes. a heartbeat. It's just this wave that passes over the yes. surface of the heart. Exactly, yeah. And that's the heartbeat. So if it's a regular wave where it just, yeah, like you say, starts at the top, kind of just travels all the way down in one coherent wave, mm -hmm. um, then that would be kind of amenable to a regular, a regular heartbeat. Sure. Right? And that'll happen about once a second. And so each of those unless you're super athletic wave. and it happens yeah. like once every two minutes yeah or if something. you work out a lot yeah. then you know maybe it'll <laughs> why, change a do you know bit. why why it is that athlete like why why should a uh, a more athletic person have a lower heart rate what you know why do you have any idea why that why that no that would there? come down to the sinoatrial node right how it actually regulates so the what what causes this heartbeat to start right because every once every second it has to start somewhere at the top mm -hmm. so to speak and then travel uh, and so what causes it to start is called the sinoatrial node and it is actually autonomous it, it sort of acts on its own and there's a great deal of science dealt with understanding how mm -hmm. that can propagate with such regularity mm -hmm. uh, but i don't know much about the sinoatrial exactly why node. why yeah. that yeah and that's always been i guess like i think the uh, the kind of um hand wavy answer i've heard is that your heart gets stronger it pumps more and sure. then <laughs> yeah. you know if you pump more then you need to pump less times 
Uh, so I mean, maybe that is the could the be yeah. Uh, some idea. it must be a feedback though because the sinoatrial node sets the tempo. So the sinoatrial okay. node must know to set the tempo slightly differently. Ah, oh, interesting. Which uh, of course that's probably dependent on some number of factors. Hmm. Right? Interesting. Yeah. Cool. So, so, so your uh, basic theory for why these uh, these waves uh, or, or in fact why the heart. Um, doesn't keep its regular pumping mm -hmm. is due to these things called spiral waves. Is, is that yeah. right? Yeah. So they're basically, they are just the, this normal wave uh, of activation that we think of during a normal heartbeat from the top spreading right. across the tissue can get um, blocked in some sense. So there's lots of reasons why in the heart there's some regions which may not be conducting, which may block this wave front. And if that occurs in such a way, we can initiate a spiral wave where that wave now keeps kind of just traveling around in a spiral um, fashion, which we call a rotor. And so it just keeps traveling around in the same place. And at that point, um, the frequency, it turns out from these equations we can show, the frequency of that spiral wave, once it gets initiated, is much higher than the frequency that the sinoatrial node wants to I see. Okay, activate so you're heart. gonna be basically, you, you generate this kind of fake sinoatrial node or something mm -hmm. that is is asking the heart to do uh these spiral waves instead of this nice yeah uh, we put some blocks in the way right right or you can also think about anchors okay. you can put basically just like a kind of a dot somewhere on the surface and you can show that if you have the right conditions you can actually just get it to anchor down on that non-conducting dot and it'll just keep going traveling around that that non-conducting interesting region that's the, really cool tiny dot and so what what happens when you uh think about these sorts of um, spiral waves um, starting in a system that is like w with in, in the heart, basically. Sure, so once that starts, we have, again, let's assume it's anchored down to some point, just for simplicity. So if it's anchored down to some point, that now takes over control of the heart. So now your heartbeat would be about five times faster. Now it would be beating about five times the normal uh, tempo. Mm -hmm. And that's just from the dynamics of these equations, we can show that these, these spirals tend to travel much faster than just a single mm -hmm. plane. What wave. is this factor? Is, is there a, a physical reason for this factor of five or, or does it just end well, up being, because I remember you, you, know, you were fitting data as well sure, uh, sure, sure. in this. Yeah, so the factor of five, um, there's sort of two, two factors here, which is one is the sinoatrial node is autonomous, right? So the factor of five just sort of happens to be the case because the sinoatrial node uh, totally autonomously sets the tempo as once a second. Mm -hmm. Just that's sure. the way it is. Uh, but once these uh, spiral waves propagate, you can show that they have a frequency which tends to be, and it'll change a little bit, but it just mm -hmm. tends to be around five times faster mm -hmm. than what the sinoatrial node happens to want. Interesting. Right? Okay. So there's no, you can't derive it, so mm -hmm. to speak, just because the sinoatrial node is, is autonomous. Um, but in some sense, it's just that, that it has a, a, a general frequency once you get this rotational activity, and that happens to be five times. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Okay. So once you get this um, rotor anchored, now you have a faster heartbeat, which would be some sort of tachycardia, mm -hmm. that's what it's called. Okay. Um, but this still isn't. So if you want to sound really smart, you want to sound smart. Run, you can you say I have a tachycardia. It. Yes, I have the uh, arrhythmia uh, in particular. It's the tachycardia. Okay, very yeah. nice. Okay, yeah, if you want to I'll make the sure that next time I, I talk to a young lady at a bar, I will tell it. her about my my tachycardia for being uh, scared as hell uh, about talking to her. I'm sure that'll that'll yeah. And she'll be like, "Wow, he's so smart." Report back to me about it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. All right. Um, so yeah. So once you have this tachycardia. What happens to transition this from just being a faster tempo to actually being a disorganized tempo is that somewhere along the line that must be breaking up. 
So it turns out that you may have some spiral which is rotating coherently in one part of, of, the, the, of your heart. Mm -hmm. And then somewhere farther away from that anchored point, it seems to just kind of break up, whether that's because there's some kind of heterogeneities, there's some kind of non-conducting regions, sure. there's just some, something is in the way, and it causes that wave front, which is being now controlled by the spiral wave, to break up farther away. Interesting. So we have this fibrillation. What we think the state is, is that we have some sort of stable spiral in some part of the tissue, mm -hmm. and that's acting as a driver for the fibrillation. Right? It is not disorganized itself because it's, it it's is driving. It's just a spiral, sure. It's just a spiral. But away from that somewhere, we seem to find some sort of breakup where these waves kind of just keep breaking up. Okay. And, and so these spirals end up kind of breaking into multiple Into multiple other spirals, too. As the, okay. It turns out when they break around some um, some some non-conductive And you can region. think about, I mean, I guess like in terms of a mental picture, you can really think about this as you know a wave in, in water, right? You sure. know, if you could somehow get... Uh, Kind of a vortex going mm -hmm. in, in water that would be kind of amenable to the same sort of picture as the spiral wave sure and if yeah. you put a little um i guess if you have like a rock or something yeah, in your water emotion. you can think about you know the breaking off part yeah. of that that spiral yeah uh, sure yeah imagine there's just an obstacle of any sort you know there's like a little wall it's not a, it's just a i don't know pole right you just put a bunch of these obstacles in the water and it's the wave front will break around right obstacle. exactly exactly and maybe and it turns out in our system that can you get the same sort of generate thing. its own spirals which then break up and fragment and you just get this fragmentation of the wave front and then when you have all of these different wave spiral waves going all over the place mm -hmm. that's where your your heart's be is so irregular yeah and then, then then remember those the the activation front so the front of these waves this wave front is what actually causes the contraction. Right. So if it's occurring on all of these many numerous waves which are breaking up and are really not stable in any sense, mm -hmm. that now is just causing chaos, right? That's right. where the bag of worms looks sure, comes sure. from because yeah. it's just every region is trying to activate on its own right. schedule. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, so then basically what what did you find in your uh, in, in your studies? So in our studies, we have a paper out uh, from a couple months ago where we look at what you can do is you can record electrical data from the heart okay. because really our models are all about voltage. Right. Everything we've been talking about so far is just this is a picture of things that could happen sure. yeah. in the heart, right? Yes. We have the, none of none of what we talked about kind of a priori or before mm -hmm. the fact yeah. uh, sh should have anything to do with sure, the real world have to, necessarily. Yeah, of course. Right. And there have uh, been. I mean, real yeah. world is in. It could happen based yes. on you know we know heart cells work this way, mm -hmm. but we don't know that that's necessarily what's causing. Sure, a, sure, sure. You can choose many parameters, right? So we also would have no idea exactly the picture, the particulars of the picture, right? right. That'll change based on the parameters. Mm -hmm. So, um, so what we did in this paper is we took uh, electrical data from the heart. So our um, medical collaborators during certain procedures, when these patients were undergoing this fibrillation. They actually took from specific points along the heart, you know, I think 64 total points mm -hmm. along the heart. They sort of set this grid and they recorded the electrical activity at each of those points. Okay. And so we can take that now and sort of try to reconstruct what we think we're seeing. Right. Because your equations describe the electrical activity. So perfect. You just you take data yeah. on the electrical activity, you fit your equations to that to that data and you see if it... If it uh... It's possible, basically, right? So almost, we actually would have uh, the the issue we have now, and I don't want to get into too much detail, but the issue is when you record each of those points, you're not only getting um, 
the actual potential at that cell, right? You're recording above some clump of cells. Okay. So you're going to get some summed activity. I see. And so you get, what you do get is you get a deflection when the wave front passes underneath that electrode. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially what we want to use. We want to say, I let's see. find in this signals, we don't know what's happening in between, but let's just find all of these clear deflections. And that is a point we'll say when it's being activated or I see. when the okay. wave front okay. passes. So it's not quite, your equations describe kind of the potential there, whereas yeah. you only are picking up kind of this this bulk behavior yes, of, a, yeah. of a, okay. Exactly. Yeah, so, so it's a good point because it would be fantastic if we can get the exact voltage of a single cell. Sure, sure, right? and then that would make yeah. it much easier to fit. Yeah, uh, then it would be, your model we could know. almost just then play like a video, right? right. At that point, yeah. you could just look now, what is the voltage? We're not quite at that point uh, experimentally, but what we can do is we can get in 64 points across the, uh, the heart surface, you can get an idea of when it activates, which mm -hmm. is very important. I mean, that's to an extent, the biggest uh, what we're really concerned with is when it's activating we want it to right, be together because you want it to activate yeah in this nice mm -hmm. uh coherent way and, yeah. and beat once per second or, sure, or whatever yeah. so what we do is we looked at that data and we wanted to say if we really uh, believe our picture that we have some sort of stable source that is now breaking up farther away from where it's anchored mm -hmm. in the heart uh, we should be able to find some region of the heart which still activates together because mm -hmm. if you think of this spiral traveling you know, again, if there's no breakup, it's still going to activate together. These regions of tissue will still activate one after the other. Right. In this kind of circular pattern, fine, but it will still be, uh, in some sense, synchronized is mm -hmm. the word we use. So it'll be activating where one activates, then the next. Yeah, so the you next. should basically be able to see the spiral in the in the data is, is kind of what you're, you're getting at, right? To an extent, yeah. It's very hard to actually um, plot these sort of activations and make a real video out of it because it's a, a discrete time, right? You mm -hmm. only get discrete time information. Okay. So you can kind of, but what we can do even better is we can look at the synchrony uh, of, of each of these electrograms is what they're called. So this is the data, the electrical okay. activity. And we can actually just look what of these, if any, are synchronized, meaning they seem to be activating together okay. over some extended period of time. And if you do that, it turns out you can find throughout these procedures, you can find regions of tissue even amongst this, you know, camp, uh, bag of worms type state sure, where it sure. just looks, if you look at it, it looks just random. You can find certain regions of tissue which actually are activating together, mm -hmm. right? One after the other after the I other, see, consistently for some period of time. Okay. And so that's one of the main findings we showed was that some people maybe think that really all we have is this breakup state where everything is just fragmenting and there's okay. no stability anywhere. I see. There's, in some sense, no driver. Okay. Uh, what so we showed is that there seems to be regions which synchronize and activate together and therefore likely is acting as a driver of the I see. I see. Chaos. Okay. So you found basically these um, this sort of pattern of activity even in the chaos, yeah. essentially. So yeah, we look this... in the chaos and we try to find, is there really any order to this chaos? Right. And what we found is there are regions which, in a very serious sense, you can say are ordered, even though looking at the data, you right. don't see anything with your eyes. Looking at it, certainly if you just looked at the heart, you wouldn't say If that you do region. enough math. Yeah, you, you have find. to do enough to really say over time <laughs> these tend to activate together. I these see. Number I see. of electrons, and since they seem to be kind of uh, the the kind of invariant in your chaos, uh -huh. the the thing that is unchanging yeah. even as everything else is being chaotic, uh -huh. uh, it tends to make sense that that would be essentially what's driving. Yeah, the chaos we, we can think degree. of that as a driver. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's that, that's the hope. It's very interesting. Mm -hmm. And then, do you know what? So now that you so you know. It seems like you've kind of shown that, and this was in real patient data mm -hmm, that you yeah. found these uh, this synchrony, mm -hmm. these patterns in the in the chaotic data, right? Yes. Yeah. So, like, what 
what then happens? So I'm a patient. I have atrial fibrillation. Mm-hmm. Um, what is kind of the, the outlook? How have you helped me, Dave? What have you done right. for me? So how we help you is that we can do, and this is um, something a procedure which is becoming increasingly popular in the medical field, mm-hmm. is you can actually take these patients, uh, and at first you give them drugs because there are anti-arrhythmic and drugs. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you pick your favorite. Some of them are probably good. Some may not work as well. Uh, <laughs> but the point is that in some very large number of the patients or some significant number of the patients, I'll say, uh, they don't work very well. Mm -hmm. So you start with that. And if it doesn't work in the patient, what you can do if it's bad enough, uh, if it affects your lifestyle, because Mm -hmm. it is uncomfortable for some people. Sure. It's very uncomfortable. So if it's affecting your lifestyle enough, you can actually have a surgery, which is called an ablation, Mm -hmm. where they uh, thread this catheter into your heart Mm -hmm. and they just scar certain regions of your heart. Okay. So they're shoving the poles basically in yeah. the in in the water in our picture of yeah uh, yeah exactly yeah yeah they're yeah they're putting giant rocks or giant boulders in certain regions of the pool right right and the hope there and the reason that we we've seen some success here is that the hope is if you can find regions which are acting as drivers mm-hmm. in whatever sense that may be and you can now put the boulder on the driver mm-hmm. there's now nothing to drive interesting your regular right. heartbeat so you end up basically. And right now they are doing this sort of, uh, let's call it boulder therapy. It's called sure. ablation yes. therapy, yeah. uh, right? So so they are doing this sort of boulder therapy, but it's not, um, you know, if I'm a patient coming in, they don't, these these sorts of regions, the, the driving regions that you were talking about are mm-hmm. different in every patient. Yes, yeah, it's patient specific, right? Because we have no, again, because of the diversity of the initiation of, of these sources, as I said right. at the beginning, we, we really expect that there's any number of different reasons which cause this to start. Right. Um, and you could have any sort of number of different driving regions yes. due to that, even if you did have the same underlying mechanisms. Yeah, and we think they can probably be most places, if not anywhere in the heart. Right? Right. There's no reason to believe that they are excluded from regions of the heart. So it happens that maybe you have some scarring on your heart in this region, and, and that anchors the mm, spiral. Interesting. And so if we can get rid of that region as a whole, then as this you know uh, heart tends to fibrillate around that that region which was the driver if we can now get rid of that by scarring that region and taking it out of uh out of the out of play the, the dynamics sure right? yeah so to speak if we put that boulder in the pool then the hope is that it won't be able to persist right and right now they're kind of uh when they put these boulders in there there's they do have some rhyme and reason as far as where they're dropping the boulders but it's sure. not it's not like they are looking at the patients and saying oh look here is where we look, we see your, your kind of driving sure, uh, yeah. points. So yeah. So some groups have attempted that. Some of our collaborators have okay. attempted that. And so there are attempts and there's a hope to do that. Um, but the most, uh, the majority of these are really just, there's like a standard procedure. They say we'll burn in this region to try to take that out of play. And mm-hmm. we think that region hopefully is, it probably is a little more important in the initiation right, of, right. of this fibrillation. But you're basically helping me out by finding or by showing that you can find these regions that are, you know, possibly driving the the, the chaos that, that's sure. messing up my heartbeat. Yeah, and in personalized sense, right? Mm-hmm. This is sort of the whole play on personalized medicine. Well, thank you, Dave. I don't. Different. I, I actually, my heart is fine so Your far. Your heart seems alright. Uh, but oh, thank you. Um, but in case it's not, I will. Uh, when you get older, well, I will give you a call and yeah. I'll I'll, uh, I'll buy you a, a beer. <laughs> okay, sounds good. I'll- all right well thank you so much for for taking the time to chat with me today dave i had a lot of fun and uh yeah good luck with your research and and uh i'll be back on someday yeah sounds great thanks again for having me bye-bye